Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear. And if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing. And their tagline is turning clothing into gear. And they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. Well, Corey, we've... Uh... I don't know how far along we are in the making sure everybody goes elk hunting this year story. We're uh, not very far along. We have a long <laughs> ways to go. Uh, what was it? Two podcasts ago, we gave the overall strategy of short-term, mid-term, and long-term strategies. And the two states that ended up in our if you have more budget kind of last on the list were Utah and Nevada. Yep. 
And I think they're both a, a complex state. Uh, there's, there are some reasons why you would want to apply there. Mm-hmm. But I think for the 95% of the population, there's really not uh, a reason to apply there. And so we'll combine those two in this discussion and talk about that, maybe talk about why you'd want to apply there. And there's certainly good hunting to be had there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's probably not for for what we're uh, trying to accomplish here. Right. It's uh, it's lower on the priority list. It's definitely not going to be one of those where you can count on going elk hunting every year. Right. Well, wait, Utah does have some... They do have gen- over-the-counter. Yeah. So I guess you could do that, but I've never hunted the over-the-counter stuff. Everybody I talk to says it's intensely crowded. Yeah. Makes Colorado look like a quiet day in the woods (laughs) and Um, i've talked to others who they've got their little secret spots and they go to and they get into elk and they don't see other people and hmm. they have a good hunt but for the most part it's uh it's tough very competitive yeah and i think utah is known for its limited entry elk hunts is what has gained utah the reputation of being a place to shoot old elk and the part of that is they manage their units based on age class yeah. with it not points not whatever they expect that the harvest will have between you know I, i'm trying to remember what they break it out seven years and older yeah. or, you know five to seven years and so that's what they manage the unit for and that requires some really uh tight Restrictions control. On, yeah, an opportunity <laughs> to reach that kind of age class in areas where you have that much public land. Yep. The other part that has so much appeal to Utah is if you were to draw and lightning strikes and you your number comes up, you get to hunt with a rifle in late September. During the peak. Not even late, yeah. mid to late. <laughs> and that's that's the downside if you're an archery hunter to Utah is their season opens around August 15th. Yeah. That's opened as early as August 13th, I think. Yeah. And it's closed. The year I drew, it closed on September 13th was the last day of the archery season. Yeah. Uh, it might even have been, it might have been September 12th, but it was right in there. So, you know, you're really just getting into the bulls starting to talk, starting to hang around with the cows. Yeah. And the next day, rifle season opens. <laughs> and so you're hunting rutting bull elk in Utah with a rifle on September 14th, September 15th through September 27th, somewhere in there, you know. And it's just, it's definitely conducive if you are a, a rifle hunter and you want that rut experience. Uh, you can have that in Utah yeah. if you're willing to wait. Yeah, a long time. Yeah. Or get extremely lucky. Yep. The <clears throat> back to our podcast where we're trying to get people to hunt elk every year if you're already in the in the pool here in utah obviously you wouldn't jump out once you've already got some years invested but yeah. even for people who have a lot of time invested in it they could still be in a, it, it even if you have 10 points today it might still be long term before you draw totally in utah you could be well into your 20 points yeah yeah you might say you're four points behind what you need to draw a tag that you want to draw in 10 years you might still be four points behind in utah yeah there's look at the utah division of wildlife resources publishes how many people 
have been buying points at each point level. So you can't just look at the draw stats from last year because there are so many people on the sidelines just buying a point every year. And what they do is they wait until they think, oh, it now looks like I've got enough points. I might have a chance. So they jump in and they're, like you said, three or four points ahead of you. So they keep pushing that yep. that point requirement. And I, if, if I was just getting into the Western point game and I didn't have the budget that maybe I would have 10 years later, Utah would be a hard place to, yep. to justify. I say that having drawn... Uh, I, I've been lucky. In, Utah. I, in 2014, I drew archery elk. 2016, I drew a limited entry archery mule deer. 2018, I drew archery bison. And this year, I'm drawing rifle pronghorn because I'm the guy with I'm the, the most points. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but if I was just starting out, it'd be hard to allocate that money there. Yeah. And it used to be, and, and Utah is still not an expensive state no. to play the game. I right. think a license is $65 so, and you have to buy that license. <clears throat> you buy the license for 65 and is it $5, I think, to yeah, our species or something <clears throat> to apply? I should look it up. I so it's not that. overly expensive, but realistically, any decent hunt for a non-resident, you know, the early season archery, you probably aren't even get going to get to hunt the the true rut with a bow, you're still looking at 14 points right now. And in 14 years, it's probably going to be in the 20s. So it's a a very long-term, or if you just want to put it in there and and have a chance in that draw, if you've got an extra 65 or $70 a year to burn, (laughs) you could apply for Utah. Right. Just look at it it as as a really expensive raffle tag. Yeah. Because they have a bonus point system, and that's the the interesting part about Utah. They split their draw into two pieces. We last podcast we talked about Arizona kind of has two pieces. Right. So in Utah, half of the tags go into uh, the first draw, which is a preference. Preference, basically, who has the most points right. gets those tags. Right. So if you're at the top of that tier, if nobody has more than 12 points and you have 12 points in that unit and you apply for it, you're guaranteed that tag. Right. And then the other half of the tags go in a random, well, they call it random, but it really is a bonus point. It's draw. a weighted, yeah. So if you have, just simplistically saying, uh, and most people know how bonus points work, if I have one point and someone has 10, it's the same as if I bought one raffle ticket and they got 10 raffle tickets. They, they have, have 10 times higher chance of drawing. Right. But I could but still, still be that, that lucky person. Yep. <clears throat> I always say that if there were 100 tickets in a bucket and I bought 99 of them, I'd still lose sleep because uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's just more than a 1% likelihood, not not probability, <laughs> but just luck of likelihood of luck that someone would get pulled instead of me. But so that, we we got to think about that as uh, you still have a chance. Yep. But understand that yeah it's it's if you're just beginning you're gonna it's like buying a raffle ticket but think about how many other quote-unquote raffle tickets are in the bucket because everybody above you gets multiple points yep. for, depending on where it's been i don't even know what the maximum points is in utah anymore i know it's in the 20s yeah it's got to <clears> be because i started late i was at least five years late 
Yeah, it was more than that. But I drew in 2011 or 12 with 10 points. And so we're seven years past that. So yeah, it's probably 22, 23. Yeah, something like that. So that's how Utah works. They have, like you said, the early archery seasons that start in August. And they have the rifle seasons right in the peak of the rut. And then a few of their units, they have mid seasons now in early October. Well, and they usually have a muzzleloader on the tail <clears throat> oh, end of yeah, the rut. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they have a muzzleloader tag in yeah. most units that it's a shorter season and it's after yeah. the rifle season, but yeah. it's still picking up that last part of September, first part of October. Yeah, I forgot about that. And then they give the elk a break, and to the, the bulls anyhow, until about November 10th, plus or minus there, they have a, a late season in most units. And uh, those late seasons appeal to, not to me anymore, because I'm, I'm out of points. I'm, I'm standing on the sidelines. How much, how long do you got to stand on the sidelines? Five years. Five years? a five-year waiting period. Once you draw, you can't apply or build points for five years. All right. You, you building points again? I'm not. No. I, I made it through that waiting period and decided not to <laughs> not re-engage to in Utah. So you're a perfect example then of the person who might be starting out in Utah because once your five-year wait expired, you're at zero points. Yep. And you made the analysis that it's just hard to justify. It, it just, I could probably draw another tag in 15 to 20 years and I might get lucky in between there, but yeah. I just, I don't want to count on that luck. Um, yeah. Utah's got some good hunting, but realistically I could draw Arizona twice in the time that I can draw yeah. Utah and have just as good of a hunt, if not better. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. <clears throat> What else we oh <laughs> there's we we don't I mean if people want to apply in Utah and they get the budget I certainly don't want to discourage them yep uh, because yeah, like I was saying in the one podcast how I got my elk tag so little history it used to be that non residents were just like residents we could only apply for elk or deer or antelope you couldn't apply for all three yep. and you could only apply for one of the once in a lifetime species so when i started this 20 years ago in utah i started with this will tell people what kind of a fool i am started with antelope so i <laughs> i'd forsaken elk and deer and then i in my once in a lifetime i'd went with bison you would think that i would have so it was, I think, 10 years ago when they started letting non-residents apply for everything. Yep. You can do elk and deer and antelope and whatever. So that's why if you look at the point totals in Utah, I think right now the 10 or 11 point total is just massive number of people. And the reason that is, is they never used to let non-residents apply for everything. Yep. So you can, and you can just imagine if you've got a thousand people and they have to choose either deer, elk, or antelope, that's yep. going to be split, probably not equally, but it's going to reduce the pressure on each of them. Yep. Now, if you allow them for $5 to apply or buy a point for each one, right. all 1,000 people are going to be in that pool yeah. for each species. Yep. So here I am. If, if you would have told me that in that, whenever that started, that I would draw elk and deer before I drew antelope, I'd have said, I'd have laughed. I said, that's, <laughs> that's impossible. Well, 
and not that that has anything to do with elk hunting, but I'm one of the three people sitting on 20 non-resident pronghorn points in Utah. Last year, there were three people who applied. There were five of us last year. Two bot points, me and two others applied for two bonus bonus tags. I did not draw, which was good. We should talk about the order of how Utah does it, is that Utah has an order. You're only allowed one limited entry tag a year. So it's... They, if you, they draw limited entry deer to start with. So if you draw that deer tag, they just give you points for anything else you applied for any of the other species. They're not going to let you have a limited entry deer and limited entry elk. So they do the deer draw. Okay. You didn't draw deer. They do the elk draw. Okay. You didn't draw elk. You're still in it then for pronghorn and all the once in a lifetime. And they just keep working their way down the list like that. Uh, so, so you do need to be strategic if you're applying for multiple species, right? Because if you really want that elk tag, you probably need to buy a point for deer, right? If there's a chance that you might draw deer, or even if there's not a chance that you still have a chance, right? And you might be count sitting on a lot of elk points guaranteed to draw, but if you happen to get lucky and draw that deer tag, yeah. elk gets thrown out and you have to wait until next year. Yeah. And the reason I say that is I drew deer with six points. I didn't, I, there was one non-resident tag for a really high demand deer tag, archery. And I, I could not believe I drew it. <laughs> I had been on a bear hunt in Alaska and we got back to civilization. I call my wife and we're, hi, how you doing? And she said, oh, by the way, there's this, I can't remember, what, $300 charge on our credit card for Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. I'm like, what? That's that's more than the the pronghorn price. I <laughs> I grab my computer. I look it up. That's the price of a deer tag. That can't be. I, there's no way I drew that deer tag. Well, I did. That, yep. So and that means that, you don't get to draw the antelope tag. Correct. So that beer, maybe I would have drawn that. Maybe I would have been lucky in the antelope draw, but I was kicked out of the antelope draw. They just gave me a point said, you've already drawn a limited entry deer tag. You are not allowed to get a point for, or, get or to tag. get a tag yeah. for, for pronghorn. So the order in which Utah does it is is something you have to pay attention to if you apply down there. I, I don't know what I'm going to do when I burn these antelope points because then I'm going to be on the waiting list for elk, on the waiting list for deer, no pronghorn points. My bison, I got that. So am I going to walk away from 10 moose, goat, and sheep points? Yeah, I probably will. I don't know. Yeah. I say that. And then I, <laughs> I don't know. Hard to say. It is. And I but, look back, I started applying for sheep in Wyoming mm-hmm. when so they I. first started. Yeah. And I think I built up six points for sheep. And that was back in yeah. the late 90s when they started, I think. Yep. Yeah, 2007, then they cranked up the price. Yeah. And I bailed. And I didn't even make it that far. I only made it till about 2004, 2005 yeah. and bailed. Okay. And looking back now, had I stuck with it, right. I would have drawn a sheep tag in Wyoming by now. I know. I kicked myself. I In 2007, I think it was, I bailed. Me and my son each had seven points. And so we, I did not realize so many other people were going to bail. Yeah. 
because the point price went from I can't remember what it was fifty dollars to a hundred dollars or some some crazy number. Uh, and I think they're going to raise it again. I heard. Yeah, or they have. I, I I don't pay attention to Wyoming moose goat and sheep. Well, it would only be moose and sheep because they don't have a point system for their goats. But are there any species in Utah that are exempt from the point system? I don't. Gen well. Well, thankfully, we don't have to talk about general deer because yep. this is an elk podcast. <laughs> yeah, That's a whole other animal. Yeah, you go out to go to go hunt and read about how their general deer system works. Yeah, if you're um, really interested. Yeah, but go hunt has this strategy article here. It's got the populations of elk by unit. It's got oh here's here it is. It has the age class objectives. So there are let's see one two three four five six seven units that they have in an age class objective of over seven and a half years old. That's and a, all but one of those units are above objective. Yeah, that's a very high age objective for. I would bet you in most states with a lot of general hunting pressure, the average age is three, four, yeah. three to four. Yep. And then they've got the largest number of units is managed for the six and a half to seven year old objective. Which is still putting you in a lot of mature elk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A six and a half year old bull elk is a big old boy. Yep. <laughs> he's he's probably not going to get bigger. Right. He's he's at his prime. Yeah. And then they've got some that they manage f for five and a half to six and some for four and a half to five. And uh, there's very few units that are not meeting those objectives. So yep. that's one of the good things. I, I'm trying to figure out what and my son, Matthew, was home for Christmas and we were looking over all this information with his 16 points and what we concluded is he's to have any predictability that he might get to go uh, we got to look at the late rifle hunts yeah. and then there's only a few of them that he would be guaranteed to take yeah. at 16, at 16 points. points yeah the archery stuff the the early rifle the muzzleloader not he's five, six points out of the game in most instances. And I, I say that just to give people the understanding that if you're just starting this, think about that. Someone with 16 points is Still relegated. Still doesn't have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Oregon. But, if, you're, if you're hoping to draw one of the better quality hunts in Oregon, you really have no chance statistically starting right now. Yeah. And it's, yes, there's always the bonus round that somebody can slip in, but... It's just, and they offer so few tags for a non-resident in those good units yeah. that you're really, really hard. Yeah. You're better off buying a raffle tag from each of the states and hoping to draw their governor tag or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, Arizona has the super big game raffle. Just go stuff that box full yeah. of all the raffle tags you want to buy. <laughs> uh, I do that. Do you? Yeah. Uh, in my mind, that's part of, when I dropped out of uh, Wyoming uh, moose and sheep, that I take that money every year in the Arizona Super Big Game Raffle. It's online. I buy raffle tickets yep. for for those. It's kind of still part of my budget, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> but some year, I'm just convinced I'm going to draw that statewide governor type tag, and I'm going to spend however long it takes in Arizona finding Big Hank. But no, well, somebody's got to draw it. That's true. 
Somebody does. It's uh, I'm not somebody though. <laughs> uh, so, what's the uh, price of a tag in Utah for elk? Oh gosh, that's uh, is it a thousand. I think it is. What? Where is it? Somewhere here. It's listed. You think I would have had that handy? What? Where's your cheat sheet? You didn't have it on your cheat sheet. I didn't have the price of the tag hmm. written down. All right. It's a more expensive tag, though, when you draw yeah, it. it. It is. I, I think I have it right here. I have the regs somewhere here. I downloaded them. Mm-hmm. Where is it? That's my first experience with a Mac. I was going to say, so. you're uh, navigating your your little... Uh, Am I doing okay? Yeah. It's, where did it go? Hmm. Well... I'm lying. I, it's it's pretty expensive. Let's yeah. just put it that way. We we can find out, but yeah. I'm I want to say it's a thousand dollars or eight sixty five something. It's yeah, it's a big chunk of change, and uh, for people who are uh, on the the tighter budget thing that we talked about the other day. All right, here. Oh, I know where it yeah, is. Yeah, organized. I know where it is. It's in here. I'm gonna. Not let you see my, uh, see that? Utah. Nine, <laughs> a whole folder. Regs. Huh? A whole folder Look dedicated to Utah. Yeah. <clears throat> I've, I've got every state by folder. I'm, that's the, all right, here we go. Non-resident license fees. The non-resident hunting license is $65. Uh, the... And this, then these are the permit fees if you draw. If you put into one of the multi-season limited entry where you get to hunt all three, all seasons. three seasons, archery, muzzleloader, and rifle, it's $1,505 for a non-resident. Limited entry, which is most of what we'll be looking at, is $800. So with so, the license, it was $865. Yeah. Yep. So this is, this is a little bit of a tangent. So those of you folks listening to this in Montana, what do you and, and maybe Idaho, what do you pay for your elk tag here in Idaho? As a resident? Yeah. I don't even know. I get a sportsman's pack, I get all right. the tags licensed, but I think it's thirty-two, yeah. thirty-eight, something like that. Yeah. Montana, I buy the whole sportsman's package too, and I, I can't remember if you bought the elk tag separately. I think it's twenty bucks yeah. in Montana. A Utah resident pays Two hundred and eighty-five dollars for their elk tag. Yep. They would burn down the capital in Montana. <laughs> so the ratio, the price difference between resident and non-resident, is not even three to one. Yeah. That says a lot to how much Utah residents are shouldering the load. Yep. And that's for the limited entry. Their right. general season over-the-counter tags are fifty dollars for a resident. Yeah, and three ninety three for yeah. a non-resident. So probably more in line with most states. Probably a less expensive option for a non-resident than most states. Yeah, three hundred ninety-three dollars. But again, right. you're uh, you're with the army of other hunters and not necessarily in quality units. Yeah. So I knew I had this here somewhere. Well, um, I didn't doubt it for a minute. You didn't. Okay. <laughs> So since we're not heavily encouraging new applicants to hunt Utah, is there anything that we got to cover or think about that? Not in Utah, I don't think. And again, Utah is an option. 
we don't want to completely discourage it, but for right. what we're talking about here of, of coming up with a strategy for applications, uh, Utah is low. Well, it's not even on my list anymore. If that tells you anything, it would be low to recommend that, hey, if you're going to take and set aside some money to apply for hunts and hopefully draw an elk tag, whether it's short-term, mid-term, or even long-term, Utah is just not a good option there. It's an expensive place to, to buy raffle tags. Yep. So. Yeah. But when I went, I had a great hunt. Yeah. I definitely manage it well. Yeah. I, I, well, I went the last part of the season. I didn't plan on having the tag. I think I said on the one podcast, they called me. I got a left uh, tag. Someone yep. returned. I was next in line. They called me and they said, you have two days or something like that. So I called and said, yeah, I'll take it. And uh, then I I'd blocked out the last seven days of the season to hunt. And I hunted for, I think, three days. And I had one close encounter. Might have been the fourth day. And then that night back at camp, my wife called me and she had a health emergency. She had to go have an emergency surgery. So that season got cut short, which I don't know if I would have filled the tag, but yeah. you, know, you never know. But it's it was definitely... Uh, I, I was way more, my mind wasn't in elk hunting at that point. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, I guess if you're buying raffle tags, look at Utah as just a higher dollar raffle tag. Yep. And maybe you'll draw. Maybe. Yeah. The good Someday. Part, the good part is if you draw, lots of public land and lots of age class units to apply yep. in. And Utah, there for a while, they were, I mean, their age class, some of those units were nine and a half, ten and a half year old bulls <laughs> that they were crazy. pulling out of there. And they, they've added more tags over the last six to eight years. Yeah. And so the quality, you don't see as many of those 400 inch bulls there for a while. Utah was the place to go if you wanted to hunt a 400 inch bull. Yeah, for sure. And they've kind of brought that management and the objective age objective back down. So it's, you know, it's still definitely quality and mature elk but there aren't as many of those true monster elk being shot every year right still lots of nice elk and still monster elk being shot but yeah yeah you let me shoot a seven and a half year old bull i'm gonna be I'm not gonna complain i didn't get a ten and a half year old bull. <laughs> yeah I, I am gonna be dancing in the streets yep so and what was the utah deadline march uh, march second something like that you, i've got that one written down yeah, Utah is March 7th this year. March 7th? Yep. Okay. All right. So there you have it, folks. You have until March 7th to buy some raffle tickets from the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Yep. They don't have a state lottery, but this could be your version of the state lottery. Yep. <laughs> and you, if you're interested in just buying bonus points, you have to have a license. Yep. So $65. And I think the deadline for the bonus points is later by a week or something. I want to say yeah. it's March 12th or 14th, somewhere. And again, don't take these dates as gospel deadlines. Definitely check the the websites for each of the departments we're talking about. But Yeah, I always rely on that. Go to the state website yep. i always tell people go to that state website don't because yep. it might have been march 7th last year and this year it's march 6th and i don't yeah. want you to miss it by a day if you're going to apply so yeah 
Well, the the other part about Utah is it's hard to gain a lot of, unless you're an outfitter, you're not going to gain a lot of elk hunting experience to know this unit and yeah. that unit. You're you're just, that's the way it is. So I, I don't have any great big stories to tell about Utah. I, I drew a tag and I waited 10 years and it's the same story as most states. I started putting in when it took three points to draw a tag. And by the time I got three points, it took six points to draw the same tag. I got to six, it took nine, and so I, I ended up jumping to a different unit that I drew with 10 points. And before the draw, even before the application period even started, I had a couple of residents down there call me and say, hey, we are experiencing the worst drought I've seen in 30 years here. You might consider waiting to draw the tag. And it was an early, you know, one of the years when the season opened early and closed early. And so a lot of things against what, what we would hope to have for hunt. Right. And I thought, you know what, even if it's early, even if there's a drought, I can still find elk and have a hunt. And it's Utah. There's going to be big bulls. We'll make it work. And we got stuck in a rut. There were, I know, three people that had hunted the same unit consecutively for the previous three years. So I had really good intel. Oh. All of them were saying the same thing. The elk come right here. They rut right here beyond this ridge. And we went there and, you know, three or four days into it, I'm calling people saying, hey, we're not seeing any elk at all. We aren't seeing any sign. And all of them were reassuring me, don't worry, they're going to show up tomorrow. It's just <laughs> overnight, the elk come to this area to rut. And we stayed in that area for eight days and only had a day and a half left in the season before we actually pulled up and went to a different part of the unit. And we had only called in, I believe, two bulls in eight days. Ooh. And I passed up a bull on the first night that was probably a 320-inch bull mm. and regretted it the rest of the season <laughs> trying to find that same bull for those eight days and just mm. couldn't do it and ended up relocating and got out of the truck and there were elk just screaming everywhere. So realized the drought had shifted where the elk were. Oh, okay. And we just got stuck in that rut and fortunately worked out and I shot a really nice bull on the last day. And uh, it worked out, but it was a tough hunt because of the rut. We had a full moon. It was early. A lot of things stacked against us. And with 10 points in that investment, you know, you've got $600 in, in license and application fees up to that point, plus another $800 in the tag. Right. So, it's, you know, we're $1,500 into this hunt, 10 years investment, and yeah. to go and have a, a disappointing quality experience because of all of those factors. Yeah. That, uh, it didn't leave the best of a experience. <clears throat> well, for me, that just is the reminder that it, it goes back to something we've talked about on prior podcasts. That because you have that tag doesn't mean you're guaranteed perfect conditions, perfect everything. No. Every year we hear about the person who's waited 10, 15, 20 years and they go on the hunt and it wasn't what they expected, yep. which gets back to our continual statement of go hunt elk every year yeah don't don't put all your eggs in that one basket and with us talking about these applications and everything this is one one bucket that you have a chance to go right. elk hunting in there's a whole other plethora of over-the-counter opportunities that if you don't even yeah. want to mess with draw systems just, there's still three or four states you can just go and buy a tag and go hunt so that's a, that's a good way good reminder Corey, that I, I think in the West, as states have evolved with these, I call them schemes, point <laughs> schemes, uh, don't 
lose sight of the fact that if you really want to go hunt elk, you can hunt elk in multiple states every, every year, year just by taking advantage of the over-the-counter options. Yep. And there's some good options there. Yeah. But for these discussions, we're focused on right. the schemes. Because we get a lot. I, I would say one of the top emails we get is, I'm new to this. I want to go elk hunting. I'd like to go to a place. That, and usually they say, here's the kind of hunt I'm looking for. <laughs> I want a lot of public land. I want older bull elk, and I don't want a lot of hunting pressure. Yeah. Well, I want to hunt during the rut right. with a rifle So <laughs> from the road. Yeah. So when you say you want older elk, low hunting pressure, and lots of public land, uh, at, well, public land is not the qualifier, but older bull elk with less hunting pressure, you're looking at all the limited entry units yep. at that point. You're not looking at over-the-counter units. And there may be some. I know there's people listening right now that are saying, uh, yeah, I've got a place that's over the counter that there's no yeah. other people and there's 10-year-old bulls there. Yeah, right. those places exist. Yeah. But and, and if you have one of those places, don't bring your brother-in-law there. Don't bring your work <laughs> buddy there. Keep it to yourself because those kind of places don't stay that way if you start bringing people there. Yep. That's like a major... What, one of the podcasts recently, we talked about public land etiquette. Uh wonder if we should talk about hunting partner etiquette. We could do a whole episode on that. And I've, I'm fortunate with my hunting partners and the people I hunt with, you know, they get vetted pretty yeah. heavily as far as, hey, this is, this is a sacred piece of information I'm giving you. We're yeah. going hunting here. Please don't tell anyone. Yeah. And uh, it just, it's, I've had areas ruined, completely ruined areas because one person finds out or one person goes and pretty soon they tell 15 people and everybody tells their buddies and right. it doesn't take a whole lot of pressure to completely hunt out and ruin an over-the-counter area yeah huh well the etiquette is if someone takes you to their spot don't go there without them yep that's just go go maybe you look around and say well okay i see there's a burn or a clear cut or whatever okay he's hunting these elevations go find your own spot that kind yeah. of looks like that and uh a lot of hunting friendships are lost over they are uh, lack of discretion yep. in, in how people do that i i just wouldn't feel right doing it that's why i tell anyone who i know who even remotely close to hey if this is some spot that you've kind of hold as your own don't tell me about it <laughs> you know, not, and not that you're going to go out and tell right. anybody else but no, you don't no. want that burden of responsibility right. of yeah i tell them i don't want to know your spots no. i i have my places and i i'm like this almost schizophrenic hunter where every year i almost go to a different spot for the idea of trying it and the downside of that is occasionally we stumble into the spots that other people hunt and they're like what are you doing here you're gonna ruin everything <laughs> well i they're not you know i, I we go somewhere yeah. and I, I feel bad when people think that we purposefully went somewhere that is quote unquote their spot it's you know, where you and I hunted in Montana. So many people in Bozeman know about that spot. And uh, Well, it wasn't I, much of a secret. I mean, you showed very prominent landmarks in the video. Yeah. And, and as we're filming it, I'm asking the question, are you sure you want 
that lake in the background? You're like, if people know where this is, they still aren't going to come here. Right. And, and if they saw us hunt there, they would recognize why, because we struggled to find any elk. And there were <laughs> yeah. grizzly bears everywhere. But Yeah. So I went back there this year for two days because a couple guys, oh, you've ruined it. So I went back there for a busy weekend in September. I never saw another hunter. Yeah. And then I went for... Did you hear any elk or see any elk? No, I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even get a grouse. I've, that, that was such a bad... I, I'm, I'm a bad hunter. Uh, so I went back for five <laughs> days in rifle season. Never, I saw two other hunters. They, they, uh, they were the, in, on day three, I saw two other hunters. So for supposedly having ruined the spot, yeah. it doesn't get a lot of hunting pressure. Because of low elk numbers and, yeah. and high, high, grizzly, high grizzly bear numbers, but so uh, in what we do, we got it's it's a little different context, I guess, than if your coworker says, "Hey, if you want to join me and my buddy this weekend, I know you've been struggling. We got a spot. We'll yeah. we'll help you out." Well, understand that those that guy and his buddy have probably spent a decade learning that every little intricacy of that spot, what happens in the morning, what happens if it rains, what happens if it's hot. Where do the elk go if they get pressured? All yeah. of the and they're kind enough to give you the the crash course that helps you skip that decade long learning curve. Whatever you do. Do not disrespect what they've offered you. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's out of ignorance that people don't realize that. I think most of the time it is just they haven't invested that time into an area to find it. And so it, it is out of just not understanding how sacred that information really is. Yeah. But I think there's other times where it's greed. Really? You know, people just get overrun with... I'll do anything it takes to kill an elk, including going into my buddy's spot, hoping he doesn't know about it. And yeah. They always know. Yeah, they find out. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a... Yeah, uh, that was a bit of a rabbit hole that we went down from Utah uh, application yeah. strategy to... Can't remember how we got on that topic. <laughs> we don't remember how we got on any topics yeah. other than where we start, but... So the next state after Utah is Montana, but we're going to skip Montana and New Mexico and, and Colorado. Colorado and do those as their own podcast. Yep. All right. Yep. So but we can add Nevada to we'll this add. discussion because it's similar to Utah. Yeah. Um, a lot of similar characteristics as far as managed for quality and for age class. Very yeah. limited opportunities for non-residents. Very expensive. Yep. And kind of falls into that same, if you want to, what, what's a license there? Is it 100, 155 bucks for a non-resident license. So yeah. you have to buy that to apply. You can ask for a refund of that, but you won't get a point. Yeah. So if you want to build points there, you're out the 155 bucks. Yeah. And if you go to Go Hunt, use promo code ALKTALK and get the $50 star credit. Got to get that plug in there. <laughs> but if you go to Go Hunt and they have the best draw odds of anybody, they, they're the most accurate. If you look at it, once, so a few years ago, because Nevada's system is so complicated to predict odds yeah. or at least to show the true odds, everyone used to just say, well, 
there were this many applicants. They didn't say by point total, right. whether it was their first or fifth or fourth or whatever choice. Gohan actually drilled down and got it done. And when they first came out with their draw odds, all of the people who'd been buying raffle tickets in Nevada said, man, I've been buying a bill of goods. My yeah. odds aren't even 10% of what I thought they were. Yep. So that that gets a little bit into the explanation of how Nevada's system works. It's like a lot of states, you got to buy the non-resident license. There's $155 out of your hunting budget every year. Yep. Then you have to apply by, what is it this year? April 15th? Fifth, is that what it is? Nevada, yep, April 15th. <clears throat> okay. Uh, us CPAs remember April 15th. We're pretty busy about that time here. <laughs> uh, so April 15th, you have to apply. And then they they don't split their draw in any way like Arizona or uh, Utah does, but they square your bonus points. Yep, so it's a true bonus draw. The more yeah. points you have, the more chances you get. But then if you have 10 points, you don't just get 10 chances, they square it. So you get 10 times 10, which is 100 chances in the draw. Right. And so someone coming in with two points is getting four chances. So if you have two points, somebody else has 10 points, they have five times more points than you, Yeah. but they get a 25 times better chance of drawing right. that tag than you. Right. And then they look at, you get, for every species, you get to do five hunt codes. So they look at five all five of yours before they go on to the next one. So here, this is how Nevada explained to me how it works. So... Everybody gets assigned all their random numbers. So in your example, all right, someone has 10 points. You square that, that's 100, plus they get one for the current year. So they got 101 random numbers assigned to them. And the other person, you said, has two. So you square that, you get four plus one for the current year. They get five random numbers. So they go through every applicant and they assign all those random numbers. And then they take your lowest random number of your 101, in the case of the person with 10 points, or you're the lowest of your five, in the case of the person with five. And that's the number you go into the draw with for yeah. elk or for whatever the species is that they conduct that whole system. And then system they just for. start with the lowest random number in the whole list yep. and look at your first choice. Yep. If you're the lowest number, you draw your first choice. Exactly. And... If you, as they go down, they look at your first choice. If there's no tags available, they look at your second choice. Right. If there's no tags available, they look at your third choice. And they yep. do that all the way down through the fifth choice. Right. So you could draw a really good tag as a fifth choice yep. with one point. Yep. I mean. It happens every yeah, statistically, year. statistically, it can happen. You, you look at the stats and every year there's somebody who draws the greatest elk tag in the state with some minuscule number of points. Yep. And now that Go Hunt will show it what hunt choice they they drew it on, uh, it's crazy how many people are drawing really good elk tags in Nevada with third, fourth, and fifth choices. Yeah. And for those of you who don't apply in a state like Nevada, where the state you're you're familiar with, they only look at first choices, and then they go on to. People, it's it's a different mindset where people are like, well, I don't, why do I even bother with yeah. choices four through five? Yeah. Well, here's why. Yeah, it's almost like you're getting dinner five separate draws. 
yeah. with a with a random number. Yeah, I've drawn Nevada archery mule deer three times on my fifth choice. And it's kind of my safety net. Yeah. With elk, there are no safety nets. It's <laughs> you just and kind of like Utah, they open their archery seasons really early. They open them August 16th or something like that and they run them Depends on the unit. They yeah. stagger how long they, they keep them open. Some of them close like August 30th <laughs> yeah. before you even get into uh, September. Yeah. That's strictly a spot and stock operation. and Or water. Or water. water. Yeah, yeah, if you have the, the fortitude to do that, which I don't. Um, but Nevada, again, they their age class is tremendous um well i know in the strategy article on go hunt they have all sorts of graphs and and statistics but one of them is units that have a certain percentage of bulls with 50 inch main beams and six points yep i mean really detailed statistics yeah and it'll show you which unit has the most bulls with 50 inch main beams and six points yeah based on harvest yeah look at that unit right there i think that's where you want to apply if you want a bull that yep almost 60 percent of the bulls harvested have 50 plus inch main beams and are six point or better yeah Oof. yeah that's yeah so the blue line here it's a six points or better uh yeah, several yeah. units at eighty percent or higher. Yeah, what is this one? That one is eighty-five percent or six point or better. Yeah. Whew. So again, when we're talking, you know, eighty-five percent of the bulls are six point or better. We aren't talking about three hundred elk that are being shot or six point or better. We're talking about six yeah, elk, right. or it, it's a very low number, which yeah. is the downside of Nevada. <clears throat> There's just yeah. a very limited number of tags, especially for a non-resident. <laughs> Yeah. You couple that with the uh, squared points and a lot of people sitting at 17 or 18 points getting 260 chances in the draw when you're starting right now with your one chance, odds are against you. Yeah. So it's it's an opportunity. It's kind of like buying even a more expensive raffle ticket with even lower chances because they square the bonus points. Yeah. I, that's why I always put Nevada below Utah if you're just jumping into the game just because the squaring of points puts new people at such a disadvantage. Huge, huge disadvantage. Yeah. I, yeah. But if you're, you know, Nevada has some amazing deer hunting, amazing antelope hunting. If you're into that stuff and you're already applying for those species, by all means. It's another but, 10 bucks per yeah. species to get a point. And yeah, whatever it is. And, and that's... You know, unlike Utah, where I'm not playing the game anymore, I am playing the game in Nevada. And it goes back to my goal of being able to hunt an elk in every Western state. And that's, you know, once I draw Nevada, and I'm probably not going to hold out for one of the glory tags. Yeah. I just want to hunt elk in Nevada and have a good chance of of harvesting an elk in Nevada. And once that's done, it's it's an investment. You're $155 a year in the license. You've got $10 per species application fees. And when you draw the elk tag, it's $1,200. $1,200, yeah. So yeah. it's it's not a, a cheap option no. to apply or to draw. Yeah, I think they raised their elk application fee too from $10 to $20. Might be. That's something yeah. like that. But yeah, it's if, if you're on a, as we laid out in that one podcast of, uh, all right, what's the budget to realistically be able to play this game? multiple states 
your budget's going to have to get a lot bigger to include Nevada. Yep. It's going to take a big chunk of your money every year for a very, very small chance. And for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess uh, what, well, how, how fitting is it that the state with legalized gambling has, it is the biggest roll of the dice yep. of any state out there for the non-resident elk hunter. Yeah. yeah. And the good news is there's still a lot of public land if you do draw. Whew, so much public land. I. It's 80, the state of Nevada is 84%, something like that, public land. And where these elk live, with the exception of one unit that I'm aware of, it's it's about impossible to find an elk on private land. Yeah. Or, or it's it's impossible <laughs> to find private land that would inhibit your hunt, let's yeah. put it that way. You, you almost would have to try really hard to find a spot where where they would be. Yep. Um, and that's, yeah. you know... Nevada is managing for that quality mm -hmm. way over opportunity. They're, they're way over objective in almost every unit for elk. Yep. The herds of elk are incredible down there to the point where they're exploding in the northern part of Nevada yeah. and spilling over into Idaho to the point where Idaho's having to add hunts because wow. there's so many elk in Idaho that are coming from Nevada and I mean, it's a good problem to have. If you, <laughs> if you draw that tag, that's yeah. a good problem to have. Yeah. And we've been down there shed hunting several times, which I know they this year have a, a an enforced season for shed hunting. Yeah. Um, but there is a high number, high population of deer and elk in Nevada. Yeah. Which I'm, makes it appealing. Yeah. I went to college there, so I... Um, I graduated from Nevada, Reno. Now it's called the University of Nevada. Back in 1988, we called it Nevada, Reno. Uh, I still call it Nevada, Reno. But it, there were so few elk in Nevada at that time. Yep. Um, I think at that time there were 1,500 elk in all of Nevada. And yeah. now there's over 15,000 oh, elk yeah. in Nevada. And, and Nevada uh, is kind of these isolated mountain ranges where... It, in a lot of the state, these low, flat desert valleys, you're not going to find elk there. You're going to find elk in these high ridges, high-range high mountain uh, areas. And so you end up with areas with no elk, and then where there is habitat, there's really good numbers yeah. of elk. But uh, you get more up towards the northeast corner, and it is a little bit more all elk, can all be elk habitat yep. there, but you get to the central part of the state or even further south, it's you're looking at some pretty isolated areas for elk. But I drew with seven points, but that was no, I think. Wait, I what did I have then? I think I might have had 10 points. I drew in 2000. No, I, I, drew, I drew seven points in 2005, but now... Yeah, we're 13 years, 14 years later. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy what it would take to draw now, but yeah. I still apply because I'm at almost, uh, maybe I'm at 20 desert bighorn points. Wow. I'm back up quite a few antelope points. I never get more than two or three deer points. Yep. I end up going a, on a fifth choice archery mule deer hunt every third or fourth year. So I'll never have many deer points. Um, and now that I'm back off the wait list, I think I'm back up to all the three elk points. <laughs> if I was just an elk hunter and not applying for those other species, I don't think I could justify 
the cost of the $155 license, the application fee, and everything else just to do Nevada. Yeah. And uh, what's the wait in Nevada if you draw? What's the what? How long do you have to wait before you can apply again in Nevada? Uh, well, it was 10 years when I got put in the on the wait list. Now they've cranked it back, I think, to seven or okay. five. I can't remember. So similar to Utah then, you have a long wait. And what that does is it just clears people out and keeps right. them out of the game for an extended period. Once they draw, they've got their reward, they got their tag. Now they can't play the game for a while to right. increase the chances for those who haven't drawn. Yeah. So, oh, well. Yeah. Nevada is a fun place. I I love the desolation. I love the it's a unique habitat area to to go. But if if it's not part of your budget, don't. It's at the bottom of the list. Yeah, don't don't forego elk hunting this year because you decided to jump into the Nevada game. Yeah, make sure that you're doing all the other things and that you're going on some elk hunts and general or over the counter units before you you start spending your money and yep. the, the, the Nevada ought to have their website just painted like an elk slot machine or something <laughs> like insert money here insert your you yeah. get to insert all of your chances individually and then pull the handle to see yeah. if you draw yeah I always have thought wouldn't it be cool if when a state sorted all the random numbers they emailed you and said here's the random number you've been assigned yeah. for the draw that that would get people excited. Would, <laughs> oh man, I'm random number sixty four. Yeah, and do a live drawing of it so it's all videoed on a computer screen. Kentucky does. Do they really? They do a live draw of their elk draw. I bet you can people watch, watch that. Oh, you, you'll hear these folks down there. Yeah, did you watch that? <laughs> or uh, I guess they they'll tell stories about. Yeah, so and so was out fishing, and I text them, "Hey, I'm watching the draw, and your name came up." It's like, hmm. So, Interesting. I don't know. Maybe that's another way for states to make, make money. money. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe for, 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 <laughs> for 10 extra dollars, do you want to know what random number you were exactly. assigned? Yep. Would, would you pay, and then pay-per-view to watch yeah. the draw? Would you pay 10 extra dollars to know what your random number was that you got assigned? I wouldn't because it doesn't change the outcome <laughs> for me. I'm okay waiting. I bet you there's a lot of people who would. Yeah. So assign all the random numbers mm, two weeks in advance of the draw. Yep. And just let people... Publish them in a members-only area on your website where you there have to you pay go. to get it. There, it sounds See? like you know about that members-only website well, thing. You know, there's, there's, I'm just trying to help these state agencies raise more money without having to raise fees across the board. I, you know, just whatever you can. You know, it's voluntary. No one would have to pay the $10 to yeah. know. Or you could just create a pool of tags that cost more money to apply for. That's what Wyoming did. I know. They put, <laughs> That's where I was going they, with that. They put 40% of them in a high dollar inside. Yep. I, I hope no other states go that route. That's, uh, that's just a money grab there is all that is. Yeah. So what else we got on our... We, we've told the world to not get too excited about Utah and Nevada. All the rest of the states, though, I think we're going to do a pretty heavy sales pitch. Yeah, there's, you know, we've got uh, Montana coming up, New Mexico, and Colorado, which I think are all deserving yeah. of a pretty good look. <clears throat> yeah, I've hunted elk in all three of those states, and man, I if you had if you forced me to choose between one of those three states, I don't know which one I would come up with. 
be yeah, hard. that's kind of I've, I've hunted all of them as well. Yeah. Colorado for draw would probably be pretty low on my list. Yeah, for but Montana doesn't have a real great draw system for non-residents either. Wow. So it'd probably be New Mexico because it's yeah. no bonus points. It's yeah. everybody has the same chance of drawing the great tags and yeah. How much does the the season date affect what you apply for? Definitely affects it a lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's the. I I ask that because in Nevada, knowing what I have for low points and knowing that bad season dates mean better draw odds, I'm applying for the terrible season yeah. dates. And I'm wondering, all right, if by some miracle I do get my name pulled, am I going to have buyer's remorse when they take <laughs> my $1,200? and For I'm you a, to go and chase elk around in the summer? In August, yeah, yeah. in the heat of Nevada. I, I don't know. I, I often wonder how much that plays into account. One of the things I often get as a comment is that a lot of the deer hunts, white-tailed deer hunts in the Midwest are the guys are really focused from November 1st to about the 10th or 12th. Yeah. So there's a big group of hunters who just block out. I am not applying for any elk hunts that are a week before that or a week after that. Yeah. So that, and this is again me analyzing states and overanalyzing uh, what things affect draw odds. Uh, I've found that there's a fewer applicants in states that have their core hunting periods uh, during those times when non-residents are whitetail hunting, yeah. which is why I hunt in Colorado. And we'll get into this in the Colorado application episode. I hunt the third rifle season because it's the first week in November. Yep. And all those Midwest whitetail hunters are back home whitetail hunters. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's a lot so, more than just understanding the state's draw process. Oh, there's yeah. a whole bottle of things to unearth to yeah, analyze I'm, when and how and I, strategy. I, I wonder how much of it is reality and how much of it is I just made something up and I, I'm creating my own. <laughs> I'm. I'm believing some um, borderline conspiracy theory about how it is. Of, well, yeah, that's a, see right there, and really, there's no correlation. There, there, all these things I get myself wrapped up about. There's probably nothing that connects anything with the other. But in my mind, <laughs> I'm convinced. Yep, that's how it goes. Yep. So, well, hey, it's working. Yeah, I don't know if it's working. You're, you're, you're drawing tags. I'm drawing tags. It ain't killing elk last year. Well, getting the tags the hardest part. That's true. Oh. Yeah. So, what do we got? Well, let's wrap it up, and uh, I've got a Sitka question of the day, okay. week, episode. Okay. Episode. Yeah. So this one it might tie in really well with what we've talked about. If you do draw a tag in Utah or Nevada, you've probably never hunted there before. Correct. And so now you've got the tag, you've got to do some serious scouting. Yeah. And some of these units are pretty big units. And uh, where do you start? Yeah. And so the question comes to us from Ryan. And Ryan says, say you've drawn a tag in an area you've never been to. Yep. You're trying to find information on that area and contacting the local game warden biologist. Yep. What are some of the questions you're asking them to get the most information possible? Well, I can tell you what not to do. 
don't call and say, <laughs> I drew this tag. I've never been there. Can you tell me where to go? Yep. Because that person is going to send you to the same spot he or she sent the last 45 people who called unprepared and asked the question in the same manner. I think these agency people, and I try to put myself in their shoes. Oh, yeah. After the draw results come out, that next morning they come in and their phone, they've got 200 messages. Yep. And they've got to get their other work done in addition to that. And so the people who say, can you tell me where to go? I think they have one spot on their map. Anyone who's uninformed, I'm sending them right there. Yep. Well, Arizona, I don't know if they still do, but they used to, if you drew unit one, they would say unit one, elk are concentrated on the east side of Greens Peak on, mm -hmm. you know, and they would literally Correct. specify where to find elk during the rut on their website. So now Correct. you have 150 people that have drawn the right. tag. Everybody knows those same areas. Yep. And I called the first time we drew unit one and talked to the biologist and said, we drew a tag, we're coming from Idaho, we've never been there before, what suggestions do you have? Mm -hmm. He basically read me what was on the website. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of elk on the east side of Green Peak, you're going to find people here, you're going to find campsites here. And I went to the website and he's basically regurgitating what's there. Yeah. The next time when I drew Arizona, I did what you're talking and had specific places already pre-scouted and called and said, hey, I've scouted, I've been to the unit before, I've been up this trailhead, I'm just wondering throughout the season, is there much hiking traffic on this trailhead? Is yeah. there a lot of hunting pressure on this specific trailhead? And got a lot more information. Right. Because I'd done my homework, I had specific questions about specific areas to ask, and yeah. they're more than happy to share their experiences with that. If you're calling, that's the same for you and I. I get multiple emails a week. Yeah. Hey, I just want to go hunting in Colorado. What unit do you suggest I go to? Yeah. Or I'm thinking about going to this unit. What area within this unit would you suggest I start hunting in? Yeah. We're not going to tell you. Right. Because no. that we're going to tell everybody the same thing and it's going to ruin it for you. Right. Yeah. And for me, part of it is this on your own, figure it out, sort of do your own homework thing. So if it's a real generic question, I almost feel like probably this biologist or game manager of come on do some of your own homework yeah and i like you i to answer this person's question i i would do as much of my own homework as i possibly can i'd be as informed as i possibly can be and i would be very respectful of that person's time yep. and be very brief with them Kind of like you said, okay, I've got, what about this trailhead? What's the hunting pressure? Is there ATV traffic? Da, da, da. What happens with the weather if that's a factor in your hunt? Yep. Think about the things that are going to be the most critical to the outcome of your hunt and try to ask them maybe three or four things related yep. to that. Don't think that it's their job to be your scouting service. Yep. It's it's not. They're, the odds are they're probably a hunter. Uh, if they work for one of these wildlife agencies. So they're going to do what they can to help you. But they also have work to do. And just put yourself in their shoes. If if that day, this is call number 20 of the same question. Yeah. Where should I go? What should I do? It's it's not their job. Totally. So Yeah. No, and I think the more detailed you can ask, and if you're asking things like, did you guys do aerial flights this past winter? How were the overall populations? Right. You know, was the overall population above objective, below objective? They're going to get excited about things like that because that's their job. They're right. they're invested in those pieces mm -hmm. of information. 
um, they're not invested in scouting for you. Right. So to say, you know, generic, where should I go? They're you've lost them already. They're yeah. they know that this phone call is a waste of their time. Yeah, and they will have their own set of one or two first questions to determine if you've done your homework. Yeah. So they're going to smoke you out right away as to whether or not you've done your homework. Yep. They're going to say, well, have you been out to our website? Because every year these states get a little better and a little better at putting information on their website about harvest statistics, boulder cow ratios, cow to calf ratios. Uh, Colorado has an interactive map of what's winter range and what's summer range, what's migration corridors. So if I was a Colorado biologist, I'd say, well, have you looked at the map of that unit? Yeah. And if you said no... I would say, call me back once you've looked at that. Yep. Have you read our hunting? Colorado has regional pamp booklets online about the population objectives and trends and everything of every unit in the state. I would ask, well, have you read that? And if they said no, I'd say, well, go read that and call me back. If you still have questions, call me back. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I, I don't mean that in a bad way because everyone wants to have the best outcome and be prepared with the best information, but it's not the job of these yeah. folks to, to become your scouting service. I, yep. I know people probably don't want to hear that. No, but. it's the truth. You're going to get more information, more helpful information out of someone if you do your homework ahead of time and call with specifics. And if, yeah. you've, if you're able to go to the unit and you call a biologist and say, I was in the unit last weekend and I hiked these trails. I didn't see any sign up here. I dropped down here and saw a sign. Do you know if last year, if there was a lot of snow at this time of year that would have pushed them down lower, would they be back to this historic area? Stuff like that, they're going to eat up. They're right. going to get excited because they're talking to someone who has done their homework, who's got information that is familiar to them, and they're going to share more with what they know. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good question because once applications go out, can I can I have an, an another uh, option on the the uh, question of the week? Another like another answer? No, another question. Another question that. But and it got me thinking when draw results come out. If you go out to the hunting forums, I don't know how it is out on the Elk 101, but out on the Hunt Talk forum and other forums, I drop in on everybody is complaining that well i can't believe they're discriminating against me <laughs> you know that land's my land as much as anybody else's and so i get a lot at that time i get a lot of emails maybe we save it for a different podcast but saying how is it that these western states can discriminate against me when i'm a u.s citizen and i own an equal interest in that when i pay taxes on federal land why can't i go and hunt on federal right. land in your state yeah do we want to yeah save that's a that pretty for later. cut and dry that's uh i yeah. mean that goes back to what we've talked about with arizona being sued for discriminating against non-residents right. and the state so, owns the, the game right. the state manages it the residents of that state right own the game in that state. Yeah. And I tell people, think about this. You're you're making the argument that land ownership, quasi-land ownership by being a U.S. citizen, somehow gives you a right to the wildlife. To the resources. Would you like, in your state, would you like to have to go and buy your tag from private landowners? That's a, that's yeah. a effect what they're saying. Uh, and the historical reason behind it is in 1842, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case, Martin versus Waddell, that 
was decided and it was about the tide flats the shellfish and it went all the way to u.s supreme court and the u.s supreme court said no all wild wildlife they called it the fishings hawkings and foulings or something anyhow it was meant to be the fishing game is to be held in trust for the citizens of that state by the state and that there is the the and they went into this law so the person argued that because he got, he inherited this land from someone who had a land grant from the king of england that with that those old english land grants came the rights to the wildlife and the opinion of the court said no when we marched the british into the ocean out there and then they gave up and we declared our our independence uh that severed all land grants from the state or from the, the king of england and after the united states became its own country it, it it's a very important case and that's why i'm focusing on it. it's it's the precedent case that most of these wildlife issues are based on is that it just came down to each state is to hold this in trust and manage these assets if you want to call it an asset this resource for the benefit of its citizens not of the citizens of the country yep. the citizens of that state so it's kind of weird that the wildlife is transitory it's moving it's fluid across the landscape even across state lines yeah and and so you're talking about how some of the elk from nevada go to idaho well those elk when they're in nevada are under the the management responsibility the trusteeship of the state of Nevada, as quick as they come to Idaho, it's not like they have a Nevada brand on yep. them. These now become elk that are under the trusteeship of the state of Idaho. Yep. Same elk, but it's just, it's uh, it's how these cases, and I, we could spin. I've done <laughs> so many presentations and stuff on this, but the point is there's no connection between land ownership and wildlife opportunity. Yep. You're welcome and, to come to Idaho and camp and hike on federal land right. and utilize that land as a tax-paying American citizen. Yeah. But the animals that are there belong to the state, and you have to play that state's game right. in order to have a chance at accessing them. Right. So even though we went through that little dissertation there, I'm sure when the draw oh, results yeah. come out, there's still going to be the same people. And, and I get it if I lived in some other state... <laughs> I wouldn't like that. What's Oregon? Five percent of the tags for non-residents. For non-residents, yeah. uh, look at Colorado and Wyoming. They're crazy generous to non-residents yep. in, in terms of percentages. And then it, it, they also the huge disparity in prices. We just talked about yeah. Utah. It's not even a three-to-one disparity yep. for for elk. In Montana, it's a thirty-to-one disparity. That's that's crazy. That's out of hand. But the flip side of that is then, so then you'll have people say, well, how can that, that interstate commerce laws, uh, all these clauses of the U.S. Constitution, <laughs> you can't discriminate against other citizens based on where they live? Well, yes, Baldwin versus Commissioner in 1978, a friend of mine in Bozeman argued that case all the way to the Supreme Court and he prevailed. And the Supreme Court said that Elk hunting is not a right. Yep. Therefore, you have no right that's being violated. 
and the state of Montana can charge whatever they want. Yeah. Look at college was, tuition. Yeah. I mean, in-state residents pay less yeah. than out-of-state, and yeah. they can charge whatever they want for you to go there and, and take advantage of their resources, and it's... Yeah. It's, uh, so there's there's always these rumblings that someone needs to start a lawsuit. You know what? There's been a lot of them. You it's know, been established. If, if you want to put money in the pockets of a bunch of attorneys, go get all lawyered up, you and your pals. Yep. And I can tell you pretty much what your outcome's going to be. Yeah. There's been plenty of these cases, and uh, yeah. I think Arizona is probably the most recent right. established. Yeah. Yes, we can discriminate against non-residents, even though. The initial ruling was, okay, you've got to add more tags here until we get a chance to look at this. Right. But it came back, and the next year they were back to the same. And Right. And also Congress said, we're going to pass a law, I think. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a Nevada and an Arizona senator, I think, who the next year they just passed a law reaffirming yeah. the right of the states to manage uh, wildlife and discriminate yep just in, to stop in, any of those lawsuits right and saying which principles or which clauses of the u.s constitution don't apply to wildlife and so i think we've seen the end of most of yep. those lawsuits we, we haven't seen, seen the, the end, end of, of the complaining right we, that's <laughs> what we have not seen the end of and and i know some people listening will say well you guys live in idaho and montana no wonder you're in favor of that yep. I well, hunt far more places yeah. as a non-resident than as a resident. Yeah, so. I, I said in my podcast one time, you know, the odds are you're a non-resident in 49 other states. If you're not a non-resident in 49 other states, there's some game agencies <laughs> that want to talk to you. <laughs> and there are some people who claim residency in more than one state for the purpose of getting resident tags. Oh, gosh. So I, even though we live in a state where we get to hunt elk every year because we apply in all these states, it's... It affects us also. Yep. And and I protect the right. I do not want wildlife to become a federal wildlife no. management system. Same as land. Yeah. I, I, I want wildlife to be a state purview. And I want to have public land be public land. Yep. I, I don't. I it, Under our constitution, if you understand it and read it, and you understand why we are where we're at. Yep. And so getting out on a forum and complaining about it ain't going to change anything. No. But it might make you feel better. Yeah. So We're all disappointed when we don't draw tags. We've got to have too. something to complain about. <clears throat> me too. I, yeah, when I don't draw, I feel like I got ripped off. <laughs> but, w but the flip side of that is when I, when I do draw... Everyone says, oh, you you high-profile people. Yeah. Ah, they, they just want you to come to that state. <laughs> like, oh, man. If they knew how, how many how many applications do you think you do in a year? Uh, but now that you dropped Utah. Yeah, I, so. I, I probably, I mean, I do points or apply in six or seven states. Do you do any species other than elk? I do. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm... I've got issues. I, uh, I look at how many tags I apply for personally. And that just, pro if you ever studied statistics and probabilities, you'd understand why I'm going to draw a tag or two every year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because of, <laughs> you saw that spreadsheet, right? The law of probability. <laughs> you apply for 100 tags and the draw odds of average 3%, you're probably going to draw three tags, three tags on average. Yeah. So, well, 
before we leave, um, we've we've done the Sitka question. We've done a good plug for uh, all of our other partners. Gerber, we've not. Uh, I don't know why I did. Why I, I need to think about. We we need a Gerber stunt. The Gerber stunt. Yeah. <laughs> what do we call it? The Gerber. Randy's recommended unit from Gerber. Oh boy, we get in trouble with that, wouldn't we? Yeah, you start telling someone, people someone, what specific unit yeah, to apply for. Yeah, yeah. someone would bring their Gerber multi-tool and start pulling my teeth with it or something. <laughs> At least stick it in a tire. <laughs> uh, we haven't done one for Rocky Mountain hunting calls, so I guess we could just have you bugle every time. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah that'd make this crowd. <laughs> but anyhow, this last one is for the Elk Foundation. Uh, we we want to make sure and do. A, uh, some awareness of their access work in every podcast. And this one here just got done in Montana. Uh, it's uh, what's called the Edith Peak. Uh, and you guys have a lot of lumber comp- timber companies here in Idaho. Yeah. Does Stimson have a presence here? In, uh, in northern Idaho, northern. more so than down where we are. But yeah, okay. they're, they're here. So a lot of the timber companies are, are good partners in in uh, access, uh, this this case here, Stimson decided that they wanted to to conserve the the access to this uh, area on the Lolo National Forest, um, and so them and the Elk Foundation worked together, and they came up with uh, this thousand, I think eleven hundred and twenty acres is what it is. It's it's. Really, really good wildlife habitat. Um, I think they say that it's it winters 500 elk, uh, but it's going to be open to the public and it's going to open up access to a lot of other places uh, through that 1,120 acres. Um, and then the funding came through the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And if you know much about that, the Land and Water Conservation Fund is a federal program where offshore oil and gas royalties are earmarked for acquisitions like this. And Congress let that expire in September. And so there's a big push going on right now in Congress or outside of Congress to get (laughs) Congress to renew it, uh, whether or not they will. I I hope they do it. It had been in place for 50 years. And if you're an elk hunter, I would just about bet you've hunted many places that have been acquired with money from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And so what happens is the Forest Service gets allocated this money. The Elk Foundation puts together the deal and the projects, usually puts the money up front and then goes to the federal agency and say, hey, when you get this LWCF money, you know, help reimburse us some of these uh, upfront costs we paid, and then we'll put the land in, you know, in this case, it's going to be held by the Forest Service. Uh, So all those lands end up either being held by a state wildlife agency, the Forest Service, or the BLM. And uh, so this is just another example of how the Elk Foundation is creating more public access. And I I don't want to lift the lid too far, but expect that in 2019, you're going to hear a whole lot more about, even more about access from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. A lot more. It's it's fun to watch how much they're doing in the access world. They've got the infrastructure and the staff and the reputation that they can really get it done out here in elk country. And it's exciting to see it happening. Yeah, Uh, because it it is something that, 
you know, we, I was just talking to a guy this past week, and it doesn't have necessarily to do with public land access, but he drew a tag, an elk tag, and in that unit, there are only two roads that you can access off of. Uh-huh. And so with limited access, he's like, this was a controlled hunt that was hard to draw, but we saw more people on that hunt than I would have hunting an over-the-counter unit because of the access points from that road. Oh. And when you start looking at private land, public land access, yeah. the same thing happens. If you right. get too much private land, all of the hunters are concentrated onto that little bit of public. So the more we can open up, whether it's easement access, whether it's securing public access, yeah. the more we have for that, the more areas we're going to be able to go and get away from other hunting pressure and have that experience that we're yeah. looking for and that we're used to. Yeah. Do you, when you're saying that, it made me think of something. In Idaho, do you have to apply for a cow tag here, cow elk? Uh, or are some so of them it, just, it depends. Okay. Um, some units. Yeah, for either. archery here, most units are either sex. So okay. you can hunt either one. Archery seasons are broke up into A tags and B tags. Depending on which tag you have, sometimes there's different regulations there. Most of the rifle hunts are going to be antler only for over-the-counter, and you can apply, and they're very easy. Just some of them are 100% draw success for uh, antlerless hunts, and then a lot of the muzzleloader tags in November are cow hunts. So okay. we and do have some over-the-counter and some draw. Because in Montana, we have quite a few places where they're trying to take cows that are creating... Uh, crop damage or whatever it might be, fence damage. Uh, and so the debate is, well, should you restrict those to strictly private land so that you aren't shooting the cows on the public land? And here's an example of what happened when they first went on an all-out mission in Montana to lower elk numbers, and I'll use the Madison herd, uh, Madison Valley down by Ennis as an example, is a lot of those elk would migrate from other places off public land down into those valleys. Well, they issued cow tags to try and knock the numbers down off these private ranches. Well, we got a bad winter. And guess what elk showed up during these cow seasons? Not the elk they're trying to kill. The migratory elk that would still live in the lower forest country, those were the elk that showed up. And those are the elk that just got waylaid. And that was, I think, almost 20 years ago now. And they still have not recovered. Really? Yeah. That group that was the migratory group just got hammered so hard. And then you throw in, you know, all the other factors of wolves and grizzly bears and stuff where now it's just hard for them to build back up. Uh, And Fish, Wildlife, and Parks will admit, you know, we messed that up. We should have made that available as uh, private land only harvest at that time. And... Uh, so I was just wondering here uh, if that was the case because a lot of times these public-private interfaces create management challenges yeah. for the state agencies, especially if you have migratory elk. Absolutely. You, you'll have some elk that just year-round live in the hayfield, and then you have some migratory ones. Which ones are you trying to hammer? Usually you're trying to hammer the ones that are in the hayfield causing the damage, yeah. and that then creates the whole other problem of, well, this guy says, yeah, come in and shoot him. And as quick as you shoot him, they go to the next guy's place and he doesn't he won't let you. He won't let anyone in there. Not because he's outfitted. Not because, he just likes 
flat out. Yeah. He didn't like hunting. And we're seeing that in Montana more and more and more and more where they call them the new age landowners. They show up and they just have a very high tolerance for wildlife, which in some respects, I have a super high tolerance <laughs> for wildlife also. But when you're trying to address some of these uh, concerns of ag producers, you can't force somebody to open their yeah. the, the adjacent ranch to say, "Hey, we know that you love elk, but we need to kill some of them. Yep. Help make we want to come on your property." So, when, when you're talking about some of these access point things, I see that happening more and more. Where it's it's really hard for a state agency to manage these female numbers, which is what you use to manage the overall population. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have the answer to it. I just was wondering if it's something that you see as a challenge. Not, I mean, not as much. And we don't have, and obviously it's it's area dependent within every state. Yeah. I think Montana has bigger sections of private landowners in elk habitat than, yep. than what Idaho deals with. But there are some local units around here that absolutely the elk come off of the mountain down into the hay fields in the hundreds and the farmers get upset about it. Yeah. And something has to be done to help them to compensate them to right. you know, get the elk displaced off of their places so they don't do as much damage. And it, it always runs into that same thing. Somebody's complaining about all the elk on their private property, but they won't allow hunting access on their property for anybody else. It's almost like they want to either right. shoot all the elk or have the agency come in and shoot them. And so there's there's such a balancing act there that yeah. has to be maintained by the agencies and... Yeah. Someday we need to have agency people on, retired agency yeah. people on them. Because if <laughs> they can speak liberally. Exactly. <laughs> if they still have their paycheck dependent upon the agency, they're never going to be able to speak with true uh, yeah. true thoughts on the issue. So that's one thing I have learned in the media world is if you want the real facts, go talk to a retired agency person. Not a current agency yep. person <laughs> because they don't want to get shipped to the far corners of Siberia for their next job position or yep. lose their job altogether, which that's human nature. I wouldn't want to lose my job either. So anyhow, yeah, another tangent. That's right. So, all right. Okay. Well, well thanks that's for, a wrap for this one. Thanks for listening, folks. Yep. We'll catch you on the next one. Yep.